Beloved, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 as we continue in our study of the book of Romans. This is our 42nd week in Romans, and we come to one of the greatest sections and one of the greatest chapters and one of the greatest books of the Bible. And this is just the gold and riches of God's truth that we are unpacking uh, this morning. So please stand with me for the reading of God's word, word, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Our goal uh, this morning will be really that we are introduced to some major themes that are here in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 uh, through 21. And I believe that you have gathered uh, from the last several months uh, that we are not going to do all of this in one sermon. Uh, in fact, it will be in many because there are so many riches and jewels to unpack uh, in this treasure of Romans 5, 12 through 21. Please hear uh, the word of God. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's Word, let us pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that Your Word, by the Spirit, is life. And we pray, Lord, that You would work powerfully in us, communicating Christ to us, building up our faith, comforting us in Your love, and pointing us to our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I trust that we are all familiar with the nature of and meaning of representation. Representation, that is, what the dictionary defines as the action of speaking or acting on behalf of someone else. The action of speaking or acting on behalf of someone else. While it may not always be in the front of our minds, representation is a common characteristic in our lives and in our society. One Very obvious example, of course, is the structure of our local, state, and federal government. Our government is 
a representative one. Indeed, when we elect a man or a woman uh, from our district to serve in the United States House of Representatives, that person will represent us in Washington and will act and vote on our behalf. These elected officials represent their constituents, and their actions affect us in numerous ways. Can I hear an amen on that? (laughs) They affect us in many ways, from the gas pump to federal taxes to national security. All of these things come about. We also have our president, of course. He represents us and makes decisions for us. He leads us in significant ways as well. And so many are impacted by decisions that impact our grocery stores and our battlefields. The matter of representation and its effects is also true of sports teams, isn't it? The actions of one person representing his or her team, such as a team captain or or a coach, could bring about disqualification, forfeit, and even disgrace for their entire team by cheating or perhaps by some other form of misconduct. Alternatively, through hard work, strong performance, and uh, and competing according to the rules, uh, the captain or the coach uh, can lead the team to victory and even glory. Well, this morning as we continue our study of Paul's magisterial epistle to uh, the Romans, we are going to see that judgment and salvation are indelibly linked to two men. Judgment and salvation are indelibly linked to two men, that is, two representatives. The first man, Adam, representing all of humanity, and the second man, Jesus Christ, representing all those for whom he died and rose again. All those who by grace believe in him. Now, beloved, if you want to understand the central message of the Bible, and if you want to grasp the overall sweep of redemptive history, if you want to interpret your Bibles Bibles properly, indeed the gospel itself, it's paramount that we understand the doctrine of federal headship. The doctrine of federal headship. The federal headship of Adam over the entire human race and the federal headship of Jesus over his redeemed. And some call this federal theology. Federal theology. Dear ones, it's no exaggeration to say that these 10 verses in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, are some of the most important in all of the Bible. Why is that? Because they provide an interpretive key for understanding, once again, the general sweep of redemptive history relative to creation, the fall, and redemption. The creation, particularly the creation of man, the fall of mankind, and redemption. This is a kind of locus classicus, a kind of classical text uh, for understanding original sin understanding anthropology, Christian anthropology, and how it is that we can be saved, though humanity is in such 
a deep, moral, chaotic mess. These verses answer those pressing questions that often burn in people's hearts. Questions such as, why is the world the way it is? Why is the world so wicked? Why is it so full of corruption? Why is my own heart so sinful and inclined towards that which is ungodly, that which is worldly? And is there any hope for a guilty sinner like me? These are questions burning in the hearts of people. Perhaps you've been asking these questions. Perhaps you've been wondering what the main message of the Bible is. The, the Bible, this, this one book made up of 66 books written over the course of about 1,500 years by about 40 different authors. Is this just a collection of moral maxims, kind of like you, you pick up the, the, the quotes from Benjamin Franklin and say, I'm going to read a little Benjamin Franklin quote every day and have some inspiration for life and business and family and whatever. Or is there something cohesive about this book? Is there a a golden thread that runs all throughout? It tells us something about the condition of mankind and, and our need for grace and where that grace would come from, how we receive that grace and forgiveness. Well, if you're taking notes, and again, I want to say this, this is a, an overview of some major theological categories that we must understand if we are going to properly understand the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the gospel is not be better and do better. The gospel is not God has a wonderful plan for your life. The good news is not, you know, if you just try a little harder, maybe one day God will accept you into heaven. The gospel is not, if you can just be a little bit better than the next guy that you're comparing yourself to, you're going to be okay. The gospel is not, if you just have good intentions, God's going to accept you. No, No, the gospel is so much bigger and richer and more glorious than any of those things that are really false gospels, and they're not good news at all. And here we will see the good news this morning, but first we will see the bad news, which is so clearly set forth here in Romans and particularly here at the beginning of Romans 5. And so there are two simple headings if you're taking notes this morning. The first one is this, sin and death through Adam, sin and death through Adam, and secondly, righteousness and life through Jesus Christ. Pretty simple. Sin and death through Adam, righteousness and life through Jesus Christ. This section is about two men, Adam and Jesus. The first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam who was a type of the Adam to come, namely Jesus Christ. And so let's get these categories uh, in our our minds. And they're so important for our our understanding of the gospel. and, And we'll Certainly, when you understand them, make you want to love our Lord more than you do right now and that I do right now. Sin and death through Adam. Look with me at verses 12 through 15 and verses 18 and 19, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through 
Whom? One man. One man. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Many died, verse 15, through one man's trespass. How about verse 18? One trespass led to condemnation for all men. Let's look at verse 19. One man's disobedience, through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. What is the Holy Spirit teaching us here in this text? This is the word of God. Well, the first thing we must consider is the word therefore in verse 1. The word therefore is a conjunction that points us back to something that Paul has written previously in order to build on his teaching and to, and to make some further points. Scholars disagree, however, on what exactly Paul is referring to when he makes these points in verses 12 through 21 on these two representatives, Adam and Christ. But it seems most likely uh, that Paul is pointing the reader back to more than just the preceding 11 verses, which we have considered over the past several weeks. No, Paul's focus on, the de- on death through Adam's sin and life through Christ's saving work seems to build upon the entirety of Paul's description of the universality and condemnation of all men, both Jews and Greeks, in chapter 118 through chapter 3, verse 20, and the salvation and justification of all men by grace through faith in Jesus Christ set forth in Romans 3.21 through chapter 5 and verse 11. In other words, as Paul unpacks his teaching on Adam and Christ, he is doing so to give us all a better understanding of humanity's fallen condition in Adam and the believer's new life in Christ. Let me say that again. Paul... He's doing this. He's giving us verses 12 through 21 to give us a better understanding of humanity's fallen condition in Adam and the believer's new life in Jesus Christ. Paul spills a lot of ink in his letter, doesn't he? Explaining the wretched and miserable condition of mankind. He begins in chapter 1, verse 18, stating that, quote, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of men. It seems that today, the only kind of wrath that is justifiable is the wrath that people in our culture are showing towards one another. It seems that there is justifiable wrath for all kinds of things, which so often are based on lies. But here God has justifiable wrath because he is holy and his creation are rebelling against him. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Think of the truth of God's creation. The beauty, we read Psalm 104 before the prayer meeting this morning and it speaks of the beauty and the glory of the world that God has made, who made the mountains and the valleys and the rivers and the seas and the the birds that nest in the branches and sing their melodies and and the beautiful beasts that that roam the earth and 
and uh, the lion that roars and, and the fish that swim in the sea and all of the, the variety of God's glorious creation with, with God's wisdom and creativity and, and glory written all upon it. And what do we do say? What do we say? It happened from an explosion. If you were to walk in here this morning and, and, and see a, a Lego castle built and set right here on this, this communion table, that will never happen, by the way, but... But if it was, and there was a 5,000-piece Lego castle, and you walked in here, and someone said, oh, yeah, look at that. And you say, oh, where'd that come from? Well, it just kind of happened. It was in, in 5,000 pieces, and then there was this explosion, and all this wind happened. And after 50 billion years, it just came together. How would you look at that person? You would say, oh, this person needs some help. Let me call my psychiatrist friend. And yet, what do we do? We suppress the evident truth in unrighteousness so that we would make ourselves to be the arbiters of morality and truth. What did Satan say in the garden to Eve? He said, did God really say this? You know, you can be like God if you will eat the forbidden fruit. You can be like him. You can construct your own version of morality. Sound familiar? Lots of new ideologies in the world and the sexual revolution and the social justice revolution and the moral revolution. There is madness and chaos going on around the world. And what does the world do? It suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. Paul then explains the three exchanges of sinful humanity and in Romans chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, claiming to be wise, they, that is all of us in our natural state, became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I've been to India several times. I have seen this. I see it in America when people worship cars and homes and, and bank accounts. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for stuff and for man-made statues. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And then the, the third exchange that Paul speaks of is in verse 26. They exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The great exchange, exchanging the truth of God for a lie, exchanging the, cre the creator for the creature, and exchanging natural sexual relations for the unnatural. We see how it goes. It's a clear evidence of mankind's moral depravity and sinful rebellion against God. Both Jew and Gentile are guilty of such sins and are without excuse. Chapter 3 and verse 9, Paul states that all are under sin. All are under bondage and the crushing weight of sin. None are righteous. Everyone is held accountable before our holy and just God. Good works cannot save us because they never measure up to God's righteous standard. All of us in this room this morning, those watching live stream, we are all in our natural state under sin, the crushing weight and condemnation of sin. 
The question that hasn't been answered up until now, however, is how sin entered the world. We see all the description of sin and how it has affected mankind, but how has it come into the world? What is sin's origin? How did humanity come to be so profoundly wretched and depraved and spiritually undone? How was death introduced to the world? These are foundational questions, aren't they? Not only as it concerns our fallen condition, but also, as we will see, as it concerns our salvation. Of course, sin wasn't always in the world. On the sixth day of creation, God created Adam and Eve in his very own image. He created them with original righteousness. In the garden paradise, Adam and Eve were sinless, and they lived with God and with one another in perfect union and communion. Oh, how wonderful it must have been. Their hearts, their minds, their wills, their affections were perfectly aligned with God's holiness. They reflected His holiness perfectly. They reflected His law that was written upon their hearts. And God entered into a covenant with Adam, for this is how He relates to humanity, through covenants. And in this covenant relationship, God made Adam the federal head or representative of the entire human race. Adam is the representative of humanity. And if he were to carry on in perfect perpetual obedience, we would all still be there in the garden paradise. And we know what God said to Adam in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, quote, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Adam and Eve were created in original righteousness, but their original condition was mutable. It was mutable. In other words, upon breaking God's command, their condition could change. And not just their condition, but the condition of their posterity. That is, the entire human race that would come after them. Of course, we learn from Genesis 3 that our first parents gave in to the temptation of Satan, believing the lie that God's word is not trustworthy and that we are better off on our own, doing things our own way, constructing our own morality and truth. So they ate the forbidden fruit and they introduced sin into the world and brought on God's curse. Mankind would no longer enjoy perfect fellowship with God. In fact, quite the opposite. They were now alienated from God. Mankind's condition became one of moral depravity and misery. The seeds of death entered humanity, inviting physical death and spiritual death and eternal death. You know, sometimes at funerals, people will say things or trying to comfort one another. Lots of bad theology being exchanged at funerals. One of them is, well, you know, death is just a part of life. No, it is not. Death is the great intruder. It is why Christ wept at the tomb of Lazarus, because it was not supposed to be like that. Death is the great intruder. Death is a horrible thing. And when I watched my dad die of cancer, it was brutal. It was awful. 
It was terrible, and it is not supposed to be like that. God created us to live, to live in righteousness and holiness and happiness with the living God. You know, C.S. Lewis said that the only happiness we can find is in God himself. It's a vain thing to look for happiness outside of God because God made us for himself to have fellowship and communion with him. But we believe the lie, and we're still believing it today as, as humanity. And death are the wages of that sin. Not just physical death, but spiritual death and eternal death. The Westminster Larger Catechism, questions 21 through 23, sets it out really helpfully. Again, this teaching tool for the church. Question 21, did man continue in that state wherein God at first created him? Answer, our first parents, namely Adam and Eve, being left to the freedom of their own will through the temptation of Satan, transgressed the commandment of God in eating the forbidden fruit and thereby fell from the estate of innocency wherein they were created. Next question, did all mankind fall in that first transgression? The covenant being made with Adam as a public person, that is, not for himself only, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation sinned in him and fell with him in that first transgression. Question 23, into what estate did the fall bring mankind? Answer, the fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. Dear ones, This is the natural fallen state into which every one of us in this room have been born. It's why no one had to teach you how to say the word no or mine or gimme. Because we are all natural born sinners. We in Adam have a moral cancer. It started with Adam and it spreads throughout all of humanity. Therefore, and this is important, we are not sinners because we sin. Rather, we sin because we are sinners. It's what Paul is describing in our text for this morning. Look at verse 12 again. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Thomas Boston, a great Scottish minister in the 18th and 19th century, he wrote a work called Human Nature in Its Fourfold State. It's a wonderful book. I recommended it at a conference recently, and I told everybody in the room that they ought to If they don't have this book, they should repent, first of all, and then go buy the book, read the book, and then read it again, then give it to a friend. It was one of the most famous books in 19th century Scotland, Human Nature in Its Fourfold State, and it unpacks federal theology, in other words. And it is so descriptive and expressive and and a, a real gem in Christian literature. I've actually held leaflets of it with his actual writing on it from uh, the New College Manuscripts Room in Edinburgh, Scotland. It is a classic. And in this classic work, 
Thomas Boston gives a helpful illustration of two stalks or trunks of two trees. The first one being Adam, the second one being Christ. All of humanity is born in the tree, the natural tree of Adam. This natural tree is a dead and putrefying tree. This tree has no spiritual life. It bears no good fruit. In fact, the fruit it does bear is rotten. Boston states that, quote, the fruits are like the apples of Sodom, fair to look at, but fall to ashes when handled and tried. The stalk and roots of the tree are dead, and thus there is no sap flowing through the trunk or the branches. There is no life at all. And again, every person ever born is a branch on this tree, this cursed tree, this tree of death. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 17, that a diseased tree bears bad fruit and that it cannot bear good fruit. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Dear ones, when we understand original sin and its destructive power, it makes sense of passages like Ephesians 1, excuse me, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Verses where Paul is describing the spiritual condition of mankind apart from Christ. Listen to what Paul writes to the Ephesians. Quote, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Did you, did you get that? In bondage to the world, in bondage to the desires of the flesh, and in bondage to Satan, and by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This corrupt state of mankind is precisely why the world is as it is today. If you read the news for five minutes, you see the profound moral decay of the world in which we live. Idolatry, false worship, pride, lust, sexual deviancy, divorce, lies, war, covetousness, murder, and the list goes on. These are the rotten fruits of the natural spiritual condition of mankind in Adam. We are born in sin, as David expressed in Psalm 51, in sin my mother conceived me. Mankind has a disease called sin and everyone is born with it. We are all born with as branches in the tree of Adam. Again, it's precisely why Paul writes in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And verse 15, many died through one man's trespasses. And verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Now, some may hear all of this and say, Wow, I could have just stayed home and watched bad news. I didn't get dressed up to come to church this morning to hear a pastor talk about all this bad news. I want to hear some good news. Well, here's the thing. The good news isn't good unless there is some bad news first. And let me tell you, this good news is really, really good. 
there is another tree. There is not just the tree of Adam. There is another tree. And its roots and trunk are full of spiritual life and blessing. The stalk or trunk of this tree is Jesus Christ. The second Adam. As it says here in verse 14, he was, Adam was a type of the one who was to come. He is the one who came. Adam, the first Adam, was a type of Christ. But the first Adam failed to represent humanity as he ought. He failed, he sinned, and he led us into the wilderness of sin and death and misery. Christ leads us to spiritual life, regeneration. 1 Corinthians 15, the second Adam is that life-giving man, that life-giving Adam. And so we have righteousness and life through Jesus Christ. Look with me again at Romans 5.15. But the free gift is not like the trespass, where if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And in verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Do you see what Paul is saying here? In Adam, we are lost. But in Christ, we are found. In Adam, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. In Christ, we are made alive. Spiritually dead in sin, united to Adam, we are spiritually alive, united to Christ. In Adam, we are justly condemned before a holy God, but in Christ we are justified before God through faith. Represented only by the first Adam, we are doomed to everlasting death and judgment. But represented by Christ through faith, we are promised everlasting life in heaven. Verse 21, chapter 5 of Romans, verse 21, as sin reigned in death, grace also reigns through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Beloved, God's word is teaching us here that there is death in Adam, but life in Jesus Christ. We see the world as it is today, and we have categories for this. Paul has been explaining it all throughout the front part of Romans and again here in Romans 5, 12 and following. Sin has entered the world. It has corrupted mankind. And it has caused misery and death and eternal death. But there is a second Adam. One who did not fail when Satan came to tempt him in the wilderness. When the devil gave his lies about, if you will do this, then I will give you this. Each time Christ answered with scripture. And finally Satan fled. And so the first Adam gave in to the temptation of the evil one in the garden paradise. And the second Adam, who comes into this world not corrupted by sin because he was born of a virgin, not by natural generation through a man and a woman, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Virgin Mary gives birth to him. 
He is not corrupted by sin. And as the God-man, he obeys God's law perfectly for us. And a part of that obedience was withstanding the temptation of Satan. And so Satan flees. And we should rejoice in this. Because it's Christ doing that which Adam failed to do. And then as a perfect, sinless sacrifice, Christ gave his life for us on the cross. And what does God do when he saves a person but sovereignly and graciously removes them from the putrefying tree of Adam? And he breaks off that branch and he engrafts it in the tree of Christ, in the vine of Christ, as it were. And when engrafted, life begins to flow through that branch. It begins to bear fruit, the fruit of love and Joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That fruit of good works begin to show forth, not least in the expression of true and saving faith in Jesus Christ. And worship and a desire to know and to walk with God and to be with his people. This branch begins to bear the fruit of gratitude and love to God and love to neighbor. The branch begins to reflect the holiness of Jesus Christ in growing measure, never perfectly in this life, but in increasing measure. Thomas Boston explains it this way, quote, now in the natural grafting, the branch being taken up is put into the stock and being put into it becomes one with it so that they are united. Even so, in the spiritual engrafting, Christ apprehends the sinner and the sinner being apprehended of Christ apprehends him. And so they become one. Union with Christ is our salvation. We do not save ourselves. Our good works do not save us. It is the good works of Christ. And so by grace through faith, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in him, we bear much fruit for his glory. In him we are justified. In him we are sanctified. When we are brought into union with Christ, we receive the forgiveness of sins and all of our sins are washed away because they've been nailed to the cross where he died for our sins. And then we receive by imputation his saving righteousness. So now, so when we were in Adam, we were standing before God only clothed with the tattered robes of our sins and our attempts to obey his law. And we were standing before him under his wrath and condemned. But in Christ, those robes have been paid for on the cross and his perfect robe of righteousness now clothes us. So now we stand before God no longer condemned, but justified, forgiven of our sins. No longer are we a part of the old humanity, but a part of the new humanity who are in Christ Jesus. Well, some might say, I don't believe this teaching, Pastor, about the imputation of Adam's sin to me. How can someone's action so long ago affect my soul so adversely, so negatively? Well, the same question could be asked about the saving work of Christ, couldn't it? How could what Christ did so long ago affect me and my soul today? The answer is that in the first Adam, all of humanity fell into sin and its miserable effects. 
Adam's sin was imputed to us, and we see its effects in the lives of, in all of our lives and in this world today. But in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, sinners are raised from death to life. His righteousness is imputed to us through faith. And united to him, we are saved from God's just wrath. If we are against the idea that Adam's sin could be imputed to us and disease our souls, then we naturally would be against or adverse to the idea of Christ's work 2,000 years ago that he accomplished on the cross and the empty tomb being applied to us today. This is a part of God's work of redemption. Robert Mounts summarizes these verses in this way, quote, Redemption is the story of two men. The first man disobeyed God and led the entire human race in the wrong direction. The second man obeyed God and provides justification for all who will turn to him in faith. No matter how devastating the sin of the first, the redemptive work of the second reverses the consequences of that sin and restores people to the favor of God. Only by grasping the seriousness of the first is one able to appreciate the remarkable magnanimity of the second, end quote. So by way of conclusion, I want to ask you a couple of questions this morning. Are you an Adam? Or are you engrafted into the living vine, the crucified, risen, and exalted Lord Jesus Christ? He is coming again to judge the world. Will you stand before him merely as a son or daughter of Adam? Or will you stand before him as a redeemed son or daughter of God? A redeemed child of the king? Will you merely be a dead branch attached to the stock of Adam? Or will you be a living, Holy Spirit-filled, fruit-bearing branch engrafted into Christ? Will you stand before God in your sin, or will you stand before God robed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, forgiven of all of your sins? There are no more important questions that the world could be contemplating today. These questions are more important than how long the war in Ukraine will go on. These questions are more important than a cure for cancer. These questions are more important than anything in this world. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Turn to him for grace and mercy and forgiveness and salvation. He welcomes sinners. Let us look to him by grace through faith. And secondly, let us remember our union with Christ. This whole section, we're going to hear it over and over again, is about union with Christ. Union with the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And this risen Lord Jesus Christ, who has ascended into heaven, has given the church gifts. He's given the church the means of grace, the preaching of the word, and the administration of baptism, and the administration of the Lord's Supper, which we will have this evening. And what he does through these means is he reminds us and reinforces to us our union and communion with himself, the Lord Jesus Christ that he is our only hope for salvation, that he is a faithful Savior, and he will never leave us or forsake us. 
and a healthy branch, therefore, and the vine of Christ is devoted to the church. Thirdly, remember, Christ entered this world filled with sin and misery and death to rescue us from it. Dear ones, he bore God's wrath and went through hell on Calvary's cross to save us from it. Therefore, may we not give our chief affections to the things of this world, to all of that which is perishing and fading, but may we, by God's grace, give ourselves to Christ, to his truth and to his mission. For in him, through faith, is indeed justification and life for all men. We pray in Jesus' name. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this truth in your word. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel, for the good news that though there is death in Adam, there is life in Jesus Christ. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Direct our hearts and our faith to him alone for our salvation. And as we abide in him, help us by your grace to be living witnesses of this glorious truth in the world we live in today.